Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb, and we're doing something a little bit different this week. Uh, we are recording live from lovely Roanoke, Virginia. Yes, yeah, sitting right next to each other. We've never done this before. We're actually holding hands while we record, and I know you people at home can't see that, but I hope you feel the love that we're bringing to this episode of and, the Arena Decklist Podcast. And if they're normal, regular listeners, they, they would understand. Yes, you know. yes, of course. Anyway, we are here for SCG Con, including the SCG Invitational. And as always, I think, Brian, you and I are diverging on our deck choices a little bit. Well, I think we came to a lot of similar conclusions along the way. I think we had a lot of the same dalliances, like things that really piqued our interest that we were exploring and considering, even if we've kind of ended up in some different places. And Quite frankly, I still don't know what modern deck I'm playing, so I, I can't even say authoritatively we've ended up in different places, although I don't think I'm coming around to your way of thinking. So, <laughs> Well, I think it would have been cool if, for standard, we both ended up playing mono-white aggro. There was yeah. a brief moment it looked that way. where we were both pretty high on the deck, and honestly, I think it would still be a good choice. I feel that way too, and probably there's not another deck that performed as well for me on arena. If we're just talking pure wins and losses, I went on a tear with uh, just mono white aggro, really chewing up gruel decks left and right. That's where a lot of my win percentage was coming from. Uh, The matchup felt extremely favorable. They just really weren't prepared to answer it. I I felt like Phoenix was very favorable. Another matchup I was finding a lot. So I'm crushing, I'm crushing, I'm crushing. And I'm Obviously not the type of person to register White Weenie for a tournament. I I don't know that I've ever done it, but I really started to believe in this deck. I ordered the cards. They were going to be waiting for me at the booth here at SCG Con. Same. I also ordered them. But neither one of us are playing the deck. I could still audible technically. Okay, but you're not. I'm not planning on it currently. But who knows? So what happened? I mean, I'm telling my favorable part of the story, and I I guess I'll give my breakdown of why I ultimately moved away. It's not that the win rate got horrible and all of a sudden everything felt super hostile. It was that the losses felt so demeaning and like they could (laughs) pop up at literally any time. I'm talking about having a favorable Gruel matchup and then you'd play a you know, a two match set versus Gruel, and they'd run you over in consecutive matches where you weren't even in games. And it spoke a lot to how draw dependent the deck could be. I do think it's very solid despite that. And, you know, this is one of those cases where maybe you're incentivized to just bear the fact that sometimes you're going to get eaten up by your deck. And it's something we do in modern without really blinking an eye. Like we've come to accept just sometimes things won't work out in modern or you're going to have the wrong you know, set of answers for whatever you're facing. And and that's life. That's modern. But it doesn't feel quite that way in standard. And I I can't shake this feeling I'm giving up too much agency, which is silly. There's still decisions to be made. But I, I'm just telling you that I think if I went to SCG Con, registered white aggro, and flopped, I would feel really badly. And I don't think I would carry the same sense of sadness with another deck choice where I felt like I had a little bit more influence over the outcome. I mean, do you think there's any logic behind that? Or is just just me writing a narrative to kind of justify what may be a suboptimal choice? I think that you might be looking for excuses to not play it. Right. Uh, I think so too. I think that's a fair statement. It's, it's like the old thing about when you win with a control deck or in your case, uh, a Nexus deck, mm. it feels great, right? Because sure. you're you figured just out the puzzle. You're well, you're just in control the entire time and you're winning for a very long time. And then when you lose with an aggro deck, it just, you feel completely helpless. Right. And I don't think that that is necessarily hundred percent accurate, but I do see your point where you are giving up a decent amount of agency and you're kind of banking on your deck selection and your card selection to carry you not necessarily like your play skill but obviously like there are going to be games certainly against things like gruel and mirror matches and mono red where your decisions matter and against control where you know maybe you bait them into playing a sweeper and then you get to drop a johnny or something like that you know like your decisions are going to matter but they don't feel as important as when you're playing a control deck and figuring out like you know what planeswalker to play or whatever Mm -hmm. yeah and i i hate the fallacy of like 
skillless decks or the thought that like aggro is easy that's it's completely false it's not true whatsoever and not at all what i'm insisting i know there's tons of decisions to be made tons of equity to be gained by proper play and i don't want to make it sound like i'm insisting upon that it's it's more of a feel thing honestly and it's a lot of what you're describing where you feel helpless in a lot of games but like i said I mean, anyone who's played any amount of Amulet knows that you play games where your deck feels like a steaming pile. You will do nothing and sit there and draw blank after blank off the top of your deck. And you're like, how did I ever convince myself to play this deck? But it's just what you sign up for, given the fact that you have these really explosive draws and you have these really nicely sculpted long games. Mono White Aggro is doing a lot of the same stuff. Sometimes you are going to feel that sense, but you're forgetting about the times where you put 20 power into play on turn four. Right. Those, those games are just over so quickly and you're just like, oh, well, this is what my deck was supposed to do. Right. So you don't feel like, oh, yeah, like I, I really stole this one or got away with something. You're just like, yeah, this is this is normal. But then you have the fail case situations, which feel really bad. And it is weird that Amulet is on your radar of things that you could play in the tournament when you are just kind of signing up to have a thing be draw dependent and matchup dependent and not necessarily dependent on you interacting with your opponent. Like obviously your deck takes skill to navigate, but you've put in the reps to get to that point. Right. So it's, it's like not even a thing anymore. Yeah. Like I said, I think it has a lot to do with format and just like being accepting of kind of my lot in life when it comes to modern and not having quite crossed that bridge and standard. I also want to acknowledge that I do think there are some positional issues with the white aggressive decks should things develop in the way that I think they could. And a lot of that comes down to the deck that won the GP in Kansas City, Ben Friedman's Esper midrange deck, which I think was really interestingly built, really well built, and is heralding a return for these Esper decks to a more wrath-centric approach. Now, granted, Ben's was in the sideboard, but I, I think this was a crucial missing piece of the puzzle for these Esper decks going into GP Kansas City, Kaya's Wrath wasn't widely played out of Esper Hero. You certainly saw it in Esper Control, Esper Super Friends. I think Ben was one of the first I saw really wholesale adapt it in the Hero builds. And his deck did a very nice job of transforming between games. And where the Esper decks have the capability to do that, I'm less comfortable running White Aggro because I just think there's a lot of predisposition for players on the SCG tour to want to be able to pick up these Esper decks. And I, I do think they're well positioned now. Yeah, I think Esper is going to be huge for sure. Uh, the the refs actually were in Martin Mueller's original list. Oh, okay. I do think that with the way things are going with like rule picking up in popularity and, you know, there are things like, is it Phoenix that are kind of like on the cusp and are picking up like a little bit more traction the white aggro deck ends up being really well positioned against the weirder decks that are showing up to beat mono red and mm -hmm. kind of pressure the Esper decks. But at the same time, the white aggro deck doesn't have the best time against Esper or mono red. Right. So if you are walking into last week's metagame or, you know, two weekends ago, I think it's potentially a very dangerous choice to play white aggro. But I think that given how things are shifting aside from, the Esper matchup, I think that White should be, in theory, favored against a lot of things. Yeah, that's where I was standing earlier in the week, and I, I do still feel that way to some extent, but I, I'm just not going to be able to pull the trigger. It's, it's not happening for this tournament. It was close. Maybe the closest it's ever been to me registering White, white aggressive decks, but uh, not this time, Cedric. Sorry. <laughs> well, I think the experimental frenzies in the sideboard is a thing that like not a lot of people have actually added to the deck. You have people uh, like... Quicksort and Kanye Best who are crushing with actual mono white and saying that the blue splash is trash and agree. Yeah, we we've basically been saying that the entire time where you're you know you're playing eight blue sources, sideboarding an island, hoping that you have a counter spell at the right time. And it's just too much to try and play around a sweeper when you could also just punish a sweeper by playing a frenzy. So I like the frenzies a lot because it could potentially shift things back in the Esper and Mono Red matchups. And that was a thing that I saw basically when I started traveling. So I haven't actually gotten a chance to, to test it out or anything, but just on paper, it looks like it does solve a lot of problems, but 
this is uh, where the part of the show where I start making excuses as to why I'm not going to play it. Would love to hear those. And I don't know. The Esper deck is sweet. I think it has the capability to beat everything. I think that I am probably going to lock up a solid five and three finish with it, which is not <laughs> great. Yeah, I, th- I think it is just the allure of agency. Maybe, maybe after this, I should I should actually just play white. What if what if I play the white aggro deck and just go like seven one? How, how is that going to make you feel? I'll I'll get over it. Maybe, maybe <laughs> I'll move on. Maybe I need to do this to prove a point. No, and I, I think it's a fine point to prove. Let's keep in mind that the other outcome is also on the table where you just go one and seven and they're like, I threw away my tournament on this deck choice. I want to circle back around though. You're talking about like adaptations to white aggressive decks so they can kind of prepare for what may prove to be a little targeting. But it's funny because we're talking about that and I don't even know that these white aggressive decks are actually on the broader radar. Like we're talking about it. I know there's very informed people talking about it, but if you go to the last tournament result, it's this Esper win and there's no white anywhere to be seen. And white has been actually conspicuously absent from this entire format. Yeah, I I went back a few weeks actually just trying to look at lists for comparison. And for whatever reason, I think I was already on Star City or whatever. Like normally Goldfish is just a much easier way to go look at deck lists and compare them and stuff. But I was like looking through the various IQs Mm. because I don't know. I I was just like, yeah, I want to see what like the people in the real world are actually playing with these decks. And I had to go back like eight events before I saw a white aggro deck. Right. Which is wild. Yeah. The deck's too good to have such minuscule representation. And it really has had minuscule representation up to this point. A lot of that was a tough red matchup and red certainly being a focal point of the format early on. Uh, but it feels like we're kind of a few weeks away from Red's absolute high point, and there should have been some breaks for Mono White to get in there. You, is there anything interesting about the Mono White list you've been testing? Quite frankly, might have been pretty stock, except for the fact they are Mono White, no Blue Splash, which I think kind of bucks the trend. And I've played two copies of Tomic, which I think is actually pretty excellent right now. I think the flying matters a lot. The body's well-sized. And of course, its ability to shut down Nissa's, which actually proved to be problematic from the mono white side. They can kind of stymie your abilities to get wider than the green decks. Usually you'll eventually just draw enough threats to go outside of their blocking capabilities and force through your last points of damage that way. But Nissa kind of ensures this steady, steady flow of blockers as well as aggression to actually close the game out. Yeah, and it makes it so that they get to play Nissa, make a creature, keep Nissa alive, and then probably play a big Hydroid Crisis or right. Mass Manipulation or whatever. And with Tomic, you have a flyer. They can't make a 3-3 to block. It's possible their Nissa just dies, and then they just spent their turn giving you a time walk, basically. So right. Tomic makes things very, very awkward for them. Yeah, I've, I found that to be the case. I started with one copy, was very pleased with it, went to two. Uh, beyond that, bunch of one drops, law rune enforcer. I started with lower numbers. I ended up creeping up to three, then four. I think it's too important in too many matchups. Very good. And then sideboard plans, not doing anything flashy. There's some baffling ends. Uh, The first list you brought to me had Lyra and a planes, which was interesting. Hated it. Well, I I think like (laughs) I tried. I think when people weren't looking for it, it was interesting, but the problem is a lot of the cards they want against you anyway are going to account for that Lyra, and they can staple two removal spells together. And just the fact that, like, that's not what your deck does. Like, lean on what your deck does well. Don't force it to try and do a bad job at something new when it already has pressure points and already has things it can leverage in matchups where Lyra is certainly a good card. And I think it's an important part of my Esper sideboard, to be sure. I think Lyra is a fine card to have access to right now just not super necessary for the white decks. Yeah, my plan was to kind of turtle up behind a Johnny and uh Takatli Honor Guard. Right. And then at that point, you do kind of want like some bigger effect. But the Lyras did not end up playing very well. And I think this is a point where the experimental frenzy splash comes into play where it's like, that is definitely the thing you want, not Lyra. Yeah, I wish we had some more time to explore that. Who are you kidding? You you would play it, go 10-0, and then not register it anyway. I there's gotta be some threshold I would cross where I'm just like, okay, this deck is too good. And I, I felt this way twice over the past few weeks, early, early on in my testing process. It was mono red where I was just winning nonstop. And I'm like, okay, well, 
I, I guess I'm playing mono red at this invitational. Uh, things turned really hard against mono red in the last week or so. I think people have done a really nice job building sideboards for it. You can see the proliferation of Basilica Bell Haunt across these Esper decks as a huge part of the problem. And it's not even just like the Esper mid-range decks who have wholesale adapted it. Like even controlish looks at Esper are starting to integrate a lot more Basilica Bell Haunt. Uh, and that's bad news for these red decks. So I'm kind of glad I got away from that when I did. But there was a point, again, where I was just winning a lot. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be the deck. If I'm winning all the time, you'll sell me on it. Yeah, I, my win rate just dropped a little lower than it needed to to have me be like, okay, this is what we're doing. Yeah, Ripjaw Raptor is another card that has seen a right. lot of adaptation in yeah, Gruel decks, Command the Dreadhorde decks, any of the Simic or Bant decks. Like a, a lot of people are realizing that an X5 is just a huge stopper for them because they're they're ready with Lava Coil, right? But for whatever reason, people are not playing Fight with Fire yet, and I think they should be. Yeah, it's weird that that card hasn't been picked up because five toughness continues to be a problem point. I can't tell you how many times that's all that mattered as the red deck. Like my Is It Phoenix opponent would play Kefnet, and I'm like, well, I can never win now. Like this five toughness is just unbeatable. So you could see why these decks would want to adapt. But let's be frank, Fight with Fire isn't a super impressive card. Now that nobody's doing treasure map type shenanigans, you never get to the kicker where it's just this huge fireball. It's just three mana do five. And there's not a deck in standard that's interested in that kind of rate. Well, even if you play a bunch of Chandra's, like I I think a lot of the MPL lists were like three frenzy, three Chandra. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I don't agree with. I think Frenzy is much stronger than Chandra. Yeah, yeah, start with four. Easy four. Uh, you could play Chandra's Triumph, right? To have like backdoor okay. ways to actually handle bigger things. Uh, so there are ways to do it that don't involve actually playing Fight with Fire. But against a lot of the decks that are going to have Lyra, Ripjaw, Raptor, like they're not going to really be able to interact with your creatures that much anyway. So mm-hmm. it's possible you just have a runaway Steamkin live and then you can kick it. Like you do have the option to. Okay. Yeah, that's one way to get the job done. Yeah, I, I would expect more of that card going forward for sure. There's got to be some kind of adaptation for these five toughness bodies, or pe- maybe people just abandon red wholesale. I mean, what do you think about red's metagame percentage going into this invitational? Uh, it's not great. Uh, you look at basically all the decks in the format, and Gruel has uh, the Spellbreaker, uh, things like Thorn Lieutenant, all these cards that are just kind of nightmares for the red deck to deal with, Rekindling Phoenix. The Esper decks have Basilica Bell Haunt. The blue-green decks might not be favored in game one, but they're definitely bringing like 10 to 12 cards against you. Mm-hmm. They have a plan. And it it does look like red currently is the deck that is about to get pushed out. And we kind of saw that in Kansas City, where Gruel was actually the biggest deck in day two. Right. Which was shocking, because the week before, it was basically a non-entity. Yeah, well, that speaks to a few things. One, how quickly things are evolving. Two, how quickly the information is actually proliferating. And this was a point of concern when this new system kind of popped up. Yeah, we don't have any information. What are we going to do? It turns out we have all the information if people are committed to streaming all the time. And if there's, you know, the Arena Decklist Twitter account that's putting out all these lists that are making Mythic, uh, we found a way. Life found a way to share Decklist. It feels like information moves faster than ever at this point. Yeah, which I'm fine with. It keeps things interesting for sure. It gives us a lot to talk about and write content about. And I mean, certainly it helps that the format has the tools to yep. actually function like this. You know, like we could have all the information in the world if it was Teamer Energy and Ramanap Red and it just wouldn't matter, right? Yeah. But, uh, we actually live in a world where there are reasonable choices between decks and you can tune your deck a decent amount. Like, the white aggro deck has very limited options, but there are things like splashes and sideboard plans that haven't truly been figured out. Gruel, I think, is a big question mark where uh, I am very anti things like Skarg and Hellkites and Immortal Sun, mm-hmm. and I know that you're also not a big Immortal Sun fan. I would much rather be playing Planeswalkers myself, like Nyssa. And then we we are both planning on playing Esper, and we have, like, drastically different deck lists. So there's still a lot to figure out in this format. Yeah, I think there's per archetype permutations, and then there's just a wide base of archetypes to choose from as well. I guess we could come back around to these Gruel decks now because you're starting to talk about some of the cards and maybe some of the things that kind of put me off them. I I was impressed by the Planeswalker focus builds. To me, those are the best Gruel lists I've seen thus far. Things like Nyssa and Sarkin really feel like where the deck shines. You know, just back up those 
early hexproof beaters, find a way to get those last few points of damage in. That's what you're supposed to be doing. A super reactive card like Immortal Sun, like, I just don't get it. I understand the text looks really nice in the context of the format that's focused on Planeswalkers. You're like, okay, I'm done with Planeswalkers. I don't have to worry about this anymore. But it's six mana. It's super reactive in a deck that lives on its aggression. I mean, maybe there's a version that you could sell me on that has more of a mid-range feel, but like some of these decks are playing Shock and Immortal Sun, and those seem like two very conflicted goals to me. Yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, Another thing that just kind of makes me angry is that you have so many good options for Planeswalkers in Gruul. Yeah. Like you you have Domri, Chandra, Sarkin, Nyssa. Great options, uh, Even like Vivian is fine if you were playing enough creatures, right? And... Instead of playing all of these awesome planeswalkers, we are resorting to play the mopey creatures that were not good enough in last season's format and this season's format just to play two copies of a six mana card in a world with like Dovin's Veto, Thought Erasure, and D Spark. Yeah. How uh, how is this possibly a thing? I don't know. I don't know. It has found success. And, you know, I, I know Yo Man's been working really hard on his Immortal Sun Gruel deck. I don't want to make it sound like we're trashing him. He's found good results. I know a lot of people appreciate his work, and I certainly appreciate his work on the archetype. You know, he's done a lot to push Gruel forward, I think, and certainly deserves credit for the deck's, you know, kind of proliferation into the format. But on the whole, I just, I just don't think that plan's realistic. I think that there's a good core there. And it's possible that these Gruel decks were succeeding in spite of themselves and maybe still haven't found their optimal versions. I mean, you've certainly played against Gruel curve outs where they go like turn one elf, turn two Domery, turn three Rekindling Phoenix, turn four Sarkin. And you're like, what was I ever supposed to do in this game? Like there was no meaningful way for me to participate in what was happening here. And those are the explosive gruel starts that I'm really interested in. And then, of course, you've got the big bodies. You've got the Thorn Lieutenant type deal. You've got the, why am I blanking on the three mana card? Gruel Spellbreaker. Yes. Um, where you just have these big bodies able to play both defense and offense very effectively. So there are selling points for the gruel deck. I just don't see Immortal Sun as one of them. Yeah, I would rather just have Nissa on the top end. You know what's good against Planeswalkers? Nissa. God, Nissa's so good. Such an incredible card in this format. And it's enabling this whole other set of big mana decks, which I think are another important piece of the puzzle. Yeah. If, if you played much with these, either the mass manipulation one, the creature based Nexus of fate one. I have, I've, I've played with all of them, of course, because uh, my first exposure was just like people trying to get Nexus decks to work. And obviously that's something I'm very interested in. And a lot of it was like, okay, what if we just play for Nissa and for Hydro crisis? And okay, that was pretty good. Like it was, it was a decent attempt. It was certainly better than the wilderness reclamation, nexus of fate decks still not quite there but then you're like well what do i really need these nexus of fates for and you start exploring things like mass manipulation and you're like wow this goes over the top of everything this format's about and certainly the power levels there i think you are completely within reason if you choose to mass manipulate at the scg invitational but i i never bought in a hundred percent because it felt like a deck that was preying on people's inability to properly prepare for it. And as soon as it's part of the metagame, I do think like asking to resolve eight mana sorceries is kind of ludicrous, even in a world of Teferi where like counter magic is at a low. I, I know, for instance, Ben Friedman playing no copies of Dovin's Veto in his 75 cards that won GP Kansas City. I have four copies of my 75 this weekend and two in the main deck, two in the sideboard. There was certainly a time where I was saying just playing counter spells was a fool's errand. I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. I think you just need to adjust your early game where you are not likely to be caught under the pressures of Teferi, where you have ways out and are able to turn your Dovin's Vetoes back on. Because there's some matchups where those cards are just indispensable. You can't proceed in the matchup without Dovin's Veto. And it's a bit of a concession. Certainly, sometimes you're going to get caught with a dead card, but like two copies of Dovin's Veto in my main deck against the Teferi deck, I can live with that. Maybe I'll draw it and counter the Teferi. Who knows? There's applications for that card. You're not just immediately locked out, especially if you do things to pressure the battlefield early. And I think that's one of the reasons you continue to like Hero so much. Uh, Yeah, I just think that it does add another dimension to the deck, and I don't really like just being one-dimensional if I can at all help it. And I also think it's very relevant in this format where... You're talking about things like Teferi and Narset and these 
things that you need to get on the board early to deal with. Like you can try and hold open Dobin's Veto or Thought Erasure them or whatever, but I think it is much stronger to just have a hero on turn two if you have nothing else to do and then just go from there. And then post board, it's a thing that they have to respect and you can either side it out, keep it in, whatever you want to do, whatever you think that their configuration is going to be. And then just without heroes, you're making their job super easy for them. They just load up on elder spells, cut all their creature removal. They, they don't even have to think against you. Do you think they have that level of certainty anymore? Because we've started to see heroes creep to the sideboard. And it's kind of like the Thief of Sanity problem from earlier in the format where you, you just couldn't afford not to account for it. And I don't know that just because they don't see heroes in game one, they can necessarily move completely away from having any outs to it. And while I agree with absolutely everything you're saying about hero in principle and how important it should be in this format, how important getting traction onto the battlefield is, how important controlling your opponent's planeswalkers is, in practice, it just never quite works out that way for me. They die too easily to the bevy of shocks and two mana removal spells that would otherwise be dead that every deck is playing. And granted, you don't have to play it on turn two, right? You can wait and get some value out of it. But I just think you can play a more powerful effect. And in this format filled with haymakers, like, do I want to have hero in my deck or do I want to have access to Dovin's Veto and make sure Command the Dread Horde just doesn't kill me on the spot? Or do I want to have uh, another copy of the Elder Spell where my opponent has started generating Planeswalkers or I need a response to their mass manipulation. I just think bigger effects are the way to go right now, even if I can recognize like there's an advantage to being on the battlefield. So the the thing with, oh, hero dies, is that it doesn't necessarily matter if they're spending a two-mana removal spell to kill your two-drop. Like, yes, hero can kind of get out of control and it sucks that you don't just get like this free win equity, but you're still trading two mana and a card with your opponent. And if they do have the removal spell and you don't draw a hero, that's great. If they, if you draw a hero, they don't have a removal spell, that's great. And then if you ever trade just one for one, that's also fine because you're spending two mana to make it so they can't play a Google Spellbreaker or whatever. Hmm. So you you might look at these game ones and just be like, oh, like my hero like didn't run away with the game. It didn't do anything, but like it still accomplished a lot. And I think the more you cut them for more reactive cards like Veto and Elder Spell and stuff like that, or the more big cards that you play, the worse I think that you get against the field in general. And then you still have the post board song and dance where you can either keep them in or not. And your opponent has actually some tough decisions to make. Like it's, it's not all transparent what is going on right there's, there's interesting tensions there and my current approach very much inspired by man jerry we practiced this name before we even started the podcast arn arn h our buddy arn h from deutschland uh arnie Hushenbeth. that's as close as we can get Arnie, I'm sorry if we didn't nail it but i do love your list of esper planeswalkers that you wrote about this week I thought you had a really unique approach to this problem in post-board games where you recognize the need to have battlefield presence, but you're moving away from hero. You're using history of Benalia instead. And that's something we saw out of Esper decks in the past, even going back to like the blue white control decks that I pioneered way back in the pull from tomorrow, torrential gear Hulk era, uh, history of Benalia turned out to be a key card for those decks, just kind of shifting the paradigm a little bit and getting some early presence on the battlefield and sometimes just running away with the game, quite frankly. If you play two history of Benalias and they go unchecked, game ends very quickly. And I, I like this new approach of just having four histories in the sideboard and being able to lean on them a little bit more. We call this the triple-double. We have four Narset's main deck. Can't play any basic islands because of the Basilica Bell Haunts and the Kaya's Wraths. Uh, so you have 16 blue sources for your double blue card. You do. Post-board, you have four history of Benalia. You have 17 white sources. Nailed it. This is just asking for trouble. It is. And I think to an extent, all these Esper decks ask for trouble. Every three-color deck in this format has consented to not casting its spells sometimes. And even, quite frankly, the Simic decks, like... Mass manipulation. Yeah, some <laughs> of them have me very concerned with the number of blue sources they pack. And... That's bad. I, I'm not going to try and defend this style of deck building. Like, there probably should be more discipline, but it's like, 
if everyone's doing it, I want to do it too. Like I want access to these powerful things and you're, you're not saying anything wrong, but it's like if everyone's going to have these occasional stumbles and maybe this is like the reason why we got drawn into the white weenie games in the first place was like, possibly we just didn't want to do this anymore because we recognize this is a failing of all these decks. Like it is problematic to have Basilica Bell Haunt and Narset in the same deck. And no matter what mana base you have in current standard, it's not working a good percentage of the time. Yeah. So the, the white weenie deck has like the Hearthstone problem or uh, the versus system problem where you're not color screwed. You can kind of be mana screwed, but basically you are screwed if you miss a drop. Yeah. If you like miss your two drop, miss your powerful three drop, maybe you go uh, one drop on one, one drop on two, you miss your third land drop, can't play your history, Benelish Marshall, Gideon, or whatever. Like that is the type of Those are the games you risky lose. run. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there are definitely issues inherent with even the most straightforward, simple aggro decks. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of my piece on the Esper decks. M- my list that I'm planning on playing right now, very similar to this list that Arn wrote about this week. I think he nailed a lot of what's going on in the format. I recognize the flaws. Uh, I like his use of Ixalan's Binding. That's a card that I think may be a little underplayed in this format right now. Cleans up a lot of problems these decks otherwise have. You know, things like the Immortal Sun certainly come to mind. Having it out to that is nice. I just have a third D-Spark now. That works too. I think D-Spark is a totally reasonable response and it cleans up a lot of the same stuff, quite frankly, like the problems you have. It's just a question of how prepared people are to respond to something like Binding. And certainly there's Brontodons out there. Uh, you see some Assassin's Trophies. So they have they both have upsides and downsides. I'll say that. Ixalan's Binding doesn't go dead quite as easily as something like D-Spark does, but it has vulnerabilities. So maybe this is just a novelty thing, uh, but I do think it is actually going to end up being pretty good uh i'm playing or at least planning on playing a pretty normal esper mid-range deck with hero but also with a couple kaius wrath's main deck and i think that this is one of the rare situations where you can actually take advantage of the information that people have where if they see a hero precinct one they know you know quote unquote know that all of your sweepers are in the sideboard and if they see a hero they're just going to unload and you're going to be able to get them with the kaius wrath yeah, that's interesting. And I think you will find some exploits there. I, I also just think Kaya's Wrath is kind of indispensable right now. Like the way the four color Dreadhorde decks really get out of hand is with their early creature pressure. And if you can't respond to that, that's when their command the Dreadhordes become unmanageable. If you are mitigating the early pressure by the Jade Light Rangers, Branch Walkers, and Wild Growth Walkers, usually via Kaya's Wrath, you can deal with their secondary plan and you can find ways, especially if you have access to Dovin's Veto or other such trump cards. So I just don't think you can play Esper without access to that card right now. And a lot of my work over the past week has been moving these configurations all around the place, like finding ways to get my rats in the main deck, moving different cards to the sideboard, having sideboard heroes, having main deck heroes. And I think I've finally gotten to a place where I'm comfortable with all of my pre- and post-sideboard plans. That's not to say, like, I think this deck is broken. I think it has good, solid plans against everyone, which is really what I'm looking for going into a tournament like the Invitational, where it's kind of hard to pin down. There's a lot of people with a lot of different stakes, first of all, a lot of people playing for different things. Uh, Some people are very caught up in the player's race. Some people just want to put up a nice result. Some people maybe don't even play one of these formats. They qualified via their other primary format. You know, maybe they're just a modern player and now are playing standard for for the first time. Always an interesting dynamic at these invitationals. Yeah. So again, we basically agree on where the format is, the, the various things we can do to actually fight the decks that exist. We're going about it a slightly different way. But I, I think that's okay. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see if we both do well, and then it'll be okay. And if we both do terribly, at least we're wrong in the same ways, Jerry. <laughs> oh, we'll see. So other formats at the Invitational is Modern, of course. Mm-hmm. And I think the newest hotness is surrounding the War of the Spark Planeswalkers and how they interact with things like is it phoenix and even azorius control and the different things you can do with them and the, the first place i started was to fairy time raveler and knowledge pool but narset parter veils is i think a stronger card yep. for those decks just in general and you have a cheaper combo with teferi's puzzle box yeah puzzle box turning out to be pretty real Uh, It seems goofy for sure, but all these combos kind of do, right? Like all these static ability based combos 
don't really shine at first. The thing is, though, even if you don't believe in Puzzle Box, even if you don't think it actually is meaningful, I think if you don't have four copies of Narset in your Azorius control deck, you are building it incorrectly. I think it's such an important card for the archetype. Previously, it had this issue of like having to find the right four-drop spell to wrestle control of the game. Narset solves a lot of that. And don't get it twisted. If Narset minuses twice in a format as powerful as modern, that is very difficult for opponents to overcome. You find very, very good essential cards in the matchup. And this effect is amplified in post-sideboard games, which is a lot of where Azorius Control typically draws its strength from, is having some of the best sideboard cards in the format. So I think once you understand that Narset is just like the way to go in this deck regardless, Box becomes a very, very easy add, and it lets you just play the game in a different fashion. Yeah, I I did versus live earlier this week, played a very, very early version of Azorius Control with the Narset Puzzle Box combo, and... Uh, my deck struggled against humans, but I beat the crap out of Phoenix. And that's not really a, a normal thing. Like that matchup has been traditionally close. And honestly, I, I think it still could be close if the Phoenix deck has the right sideboard cards. But mm-hmm. they they really just didn't have a lot of ways to interact with Narset on 5 plus Puzzle Box. Like you, you just win the game on the spot. Yeah, and I think you're going to see that more and more in this format. That's still something being unlocked. But it wouldn't surprise me if that's kind of the breakout story of the modern portion of the Invitational. You mentioned humans being difficult. That's fixable. Like you can figure out that matchup from the Azorius side. Maybe it means a red splash. Maybe it means you do need access to lightning bolt, lightning helix. I don't know. We'll see where that road goes. I do think those three damage spells are important when you concede that these planeswalkers matter so much. And even if we're getting outside of the Narset to fairy space, there's still things like Karn floating around. Karn the great creator. So Having that three damage source can be very important right now. It wouldn't surprise me to see Jeskai kind of get a little bit more traction in the format as well. And maybe that's just what these Narset decks are supposed to be. Maybe they're supposed to have access to Lightning Bolt. And then you're able to clean up humans, uh, individual threats a little bit more efficiently. I could see that, but I honestly think that the way that you should go if you decide that you absolutely need Lightning Bolt is to play something that looks like Blue Moon that just has this combo because... The white cards are fine, but splashing is generally just like not a great thing to do in modern, I think, for these two color control decks. And a lot of the stuff that you're talking about needing, you can actually just find in blue red. And then you get this nice clean deck list. You have things like main deck Blood Moon to fight Amulet and Tron. And it is even like a reasonable tool against humans if you can kill their Aether Vials. So I actually... Uh, like the idea of this a lot and is something that I'll probably be working on after the tournament, but I don't think that there's necessarily enough time to try and figure this out leading into the Invitational. Yeah, and that's kind of where ultimately I fell on all of these Narset decks is that like they were extremely promising. I was doing very, very well given how rough they were and how unrefined they were. And then somewhere I just ran out of time. And I, I didn't feel like I had the best version of any of these decks. I felt like I was still uncertain on too many of the numbers. And ultimately, that kept me from pulling the trigger on playing either Azorius Control or Jeskai Control. This Blue Moon idea, very, very interesting stuff. There was a version uh, approximating something like Blue Moon on the Moto Deck Dump this past week. Except they had like eight Time Walks, four Temporal Masteries, four Time Warps and then like a singleton copy of Days Undoing. And actually in the context of Blue Moon, I think a singleton copy of Days Undoing does have some merit in combination with Narset where you're spending your resources really aggressively early and then you just have this reload that's absolutely unbeatable for a lot of decks. Uh, I like exploring that, but probably in conjunction with Puzzle Box being the main way you're trying to set up this lock. Yeah, I could see that. Days Undoing is also kind of interesting just in a Blood Moon deck where if you just mana screw them, they're going to have a lot of their cards a lot of cards in hand anyway. And then the days I'm doing isn't really a downside thing. So it's a card that you could potentially use even when you don't have them under Narset, uh, assuming, you know, your resources have run a little dry or whatever. So that doesn't seem like the worst to me. I could see one box one days. And then there's the mono blue approach to this as well, which is just like four days undoing. And they have things like engulf the shore to manage creature threats and just 20 islands. And then things like disrupting shoal. And I mean, soon force of negation. 
even Commandeer is a card that we see in these deck lists from time to time. So these are decks that are extremely aggressively spending their resources to set up a battlefield that has a Narset that can survive, and then just firing off the first days on doing they can get their hands on, recouping all those resources while mind-twisting your opponent. Not bad. Not a bad combination. Yeah, I could I could see trying to build around Disrupting Shoal a little bit and then certainly force some negation after this weekend, basically, I, I think is yep. a lot more exciting just because it's not as taxing. Like, you don't have to hope that you have the right CMC and it actually works against Tron and stuff like that. So uh, I definitely like that approach. And this is this is my next big project for Modern. Yeah, and I think Narset should be everyone's big project. I have an article coming out. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday. My article will come out on Friday, basically just being like, Narset is the truth. Pay more attention to this card. And I close with kind of hot take. And I know, Jerry, you love the hot takes. I, I think Narset, you love them more than anything on the planet. I think Narset will actually prove to be more impactful than any card in Modern Horizons. I think it's that important for the modern format. Uh, it just amps up so many decks, enables so many different combos. Like we're talking about combining it with Days Undoing. We're talking about Teferi's Puzzle Box. All these setups you can realistically do in a lot of different shells. And they were missing pieces for a lot of these shells. There were ways to just slam the door shut and completely take control of a game where these decks couldn't do that before. They had to nickel and dime you for 30 turns, and that's just not realistic in a format like Modern. Yeah, and in the meantime, Narset is just a very good magic card. Exactly, and that's the clincher, is that you're just happy to cast it on its face. So you have successfully foiled out your amulet deck. Yeah. You're obviously playing it in this tournament. I don't know if that's true. I, I think if I'm playing this beautiful, beautiful amulet deck, and it is beautiful, Jerry. I'm doing it because it's foiled, and that is literally the worst reason to play a deck I have ever come up with, and this is with a lifetime of really bad reasoning to play decks. But as far as how I kind of see amulet sitting right now, I'm telling you that there's existing all this stuff for control decks to tap into, and like the control matchup was already very close, and I actually think Karn is mostly a bust in amulet due primarily to not really gaining any ground against actually costing ground against humans and not gaining any ground against is it phoenix which are apt to be the two most played decks in the modern portion of this tournament so you kind of have to pass on that and that means you're just playing plain old amulet and that deck was good but every other deck in the format got noticeably better like the upgrade to something like Azorius Control now that it has access to Narset the upgrade to something like Blue Moon now that's routinely finding very effective hate cards against you, it scares me. And I I don't know that Amulet is just like there on default power level anymore when every single other deck in the format stepped up its game a little bit. And I think if I want to just do big mana stuff, I might be turning back to good old Tron, Jerry. But you got an upgrade too. You got the Grazer, man. Yeah. So look, the Grazer deserves a home in Amulet. It does something important and effective and it does come up like it's justified but it's it's not really a meaningful upgrade it's something that you're happy to have in your deck but things haven't fundamentally changed and in the absence of something i can hard target and and just quite frankly like if i believe in this narset stuff while amulet does a good job of not really being affected by the static ability just as it stands, because you don't draw a ton of additional cards with Amulet. That's just not what the deck does. It does get locked out pretty effectively. Like the combinations with Puzzle Box and Days Undoing do hit you fairly hard. I don't know if people are on the same page as me when it comes to this stuff. I, I haven't seen it super widely proliferated, but it feels like this could be the time. And as I talk to people about this style of Azorius Control and this style of whatever control, uh, even bizarre things like Sahili combo, where actually Narset proved to be a very meaningful addition. People are getting excited about this card, and I, I just don't think I want to play Amulet into that world. Not enough brewers out there working on this cool stuff. Yeah, well, you know, this is a high-stakes one-off tournament. I think people are always, especially with a dual-format tournament, people are even extra incentivized to play it safe and not take risks here. You're right. Maybe it should have been us taking these risks, because, you know, we're not really, like, regular participants on the SCG tour. We aren't battling for player of the year. Maybe you just swing for the fences and try and do something cool here. But I feel an obligation when I'm taking those kind of shots to make sure I have all my angles covered and to like basically be doing it in good faith, like believing I have everything figured out that I needed. And I just ran out of time. 
So was Tron your default then, or did you actually work on it some? Are you still playing Karn? Did you try Eldrazi Tron? I tried Eldrazi Tron. I think it's good. Karn, the great creator, is a meaningful upgrade there, but it still hinges on like the same things it always did. Like, did you draw the proper combination of lands to enable super powerful stuff? And if you didn't, your deck just kind of flounders and isn't very interesting. And we talked about this, though. That is a that thing is that you're modern. signing up for. It is, absolutely. But I, I think you can do it with a little bit more consistency. And if you believe that Karn is meaningfully impacting these matchups by virtue of getting access to these sideboard slots, we'll just go take them in Tron instead, a deck that is known for being hyper-consistent. And if there's a thing that gives me pause about Tron, it's that from a data standpoint, hasn't been impressive for a while now. Really, really low-end performances over and over and over. And I'm trying to think about why that is exactly. And I don't think it's really a pronounced deck weakness I think some of it came from people getting a little bit overzealous with their Karn sideboards and just losing out on good standard sideboard options. It's a big cost. And also, I think there was focus on the deck for a moment. Like going into PT London, that's all anyone talked about was Tron and how problematic it was going to be. And Tron is not a deck people like to lose to. But if you go back through the last few modern tournaments on the SDG Tour, I do feel like Tron has started to take a step back and maybe we'll be facing a little bit less targeted hate coming around for the Invitational. One of the things that I'm thinking about doing for my deck, which is, is it Phoenix? Very likely to play is it Phoenix, uh, is just cutting the moons in the sideboard entirely because... Exactly what I want to hear. Yeah, there. Like, so there are some Tron opponents, there are some Amulet opponents in the tournament, but there's not a huge amount of them. And I think that those players are ready with the Reclamation Sages and Nature's Claims and stuff like that. I mean, maybe not the people who are loading up on Karn the Great Creator and no longer have those slots... But I also just don't think that the matchup necessarily hinges on them all that much. Like it's maybe a time walk from an Alpine Moon, which is like certainly very good for a one mana card. But when you are stretched between trying to beat Mirrors and Azorius Control and Dredge and Humans, it's, it's really tough. Is it ends up having two sideboard cards for every matchup? Whereas if I cut the slots for like the two to four moons, then I think I have everything necessary to beat like the other four big archetypes. So I think that might actually be worth doing. And, you know, I'm not going to metagame against you specifically. I I just don't think that uh, a lot of people are at the point where they're just like, oh, Tron is finally under the radar. People are going to be cutting their blood moons. Like, I I don't think that that is going to be the case quite yet. We'll have to see. I, I do think I'm taking a little bit of a lark. I'll say that Tron won the last Moto PTQ. You know, that's very anecdotal evidence. It doesn't particularly point to anything, but it was what looked like a fairly well-built Tron list, uh, and it beat a very diverse field. And also, if there is a deck, I would expect to trend upwards, an existing deck, I would expect to trend upwards after a recent performance. It has to be Dredge. I mean, Dredge looks so impressive when we were down in Louisville winning the tournament in Oliver Tomiko's hands, also putting up a semifinals finish, but really showing that it got some new tools and is prepared to answer things which have historically been problematic for Dredge. And like having those relics, that sounds pretty nice to me going into a field where I expect a few more people to turn their eyes towards Dredge. And I heard a lot of chatter over the past week, people who were doing their due diligence finally on Dredge saying, okay, maybe I need to check this deck out and coming back really impressed. Yeah, and Dredge also got second in that, Moto PTQ. Yep. Uh, so the deck has definitely been putting up very good results, but I think that that is also just the worst time to play Dredge is when sure. everyone else is winning with it. Sure. So if anything, I am comfortable with the fact that my Ravenous Traps do double duty against mirror matches while also fighting Dredge. Right. And I'm still doing the anti-humans main deck with like Flame Slash and Gutshot rather than Surgical Extraction and stuff. So I realize that I'm a little weak to dredge, but I'm kind of hedging, but it's free because I need Graveyard Hate for Mirrors anyway. Okay. That seems like a good way to approach it. So you're in on Phoenix. You mentioned the unique characteristics of your deck, basically the gut shot removal package as opposed to the Graveyard Hate package. And I, I think that is the way to go going forward. I did play some Phoenix over the past week. It still feels like exactly the deck I've always regarded it as. It's very good. Totally fine option. I think it gets targeted a little bit by this Narset explosion that I'm predicting. 
you know, it's not an unbeatable card. You certainly have means of getting on the battlefield and taking care of planeswalkers with your many burn spells as well as Arclight Phoenix. But uh, if it is on the battlefield, it certainly slows down a lot of what your deck wants to do typically. It makes things awkward. And uh, there are cards like Finale of Promise that have made their way into my deck. And that actually kind of helps a little bit because mm-hmm. it makes me want to play Sleight of Hand in, instead of some of the other sure. cantrips, which yeah. doesn't actually get bricked by uh, Narset. So that's kind of nice. But ultimately, definitely small gains. Uh, if if there were something like a Pyroblast or whatever, I would be all about it. Oh, yeah. Or even like five damage to a Planeswalker or whatever. Like the easiest thing that could happen is that they they just minus it for some inexplicable reason. Yeah, I, I wouldn't expect that from good players. Like maybe week weeks one and two, you still saw some minuses. I think people know at this point, like you force your opponent to deal with the Narset because it is too problematic for them to remain on the battlefield. Yeah, so uh, Narset, definitely a problem. I, I wonder if there is some weirdo way where you can sideboard that is good against Narset, uh, either like you board in a specific card or what. I'm not really sure. I know... If I do cut the moons, I'm going to have three spell pierces, like three spell pierce, three ravenous trap. Mm-hmm. That sounds nice. And, you know, some abrades, angers, Chandra, Narset of my own. I wonder and if it's some type of aggressive card. Maybe even something like Dreadhorde Arcanist, where you're able to get double duty out of your lightning bolts and just have a body on the battlefield. But it's it's kind of awkward, though, too, because a lot of your cards are cantrips, which then get bricked by the Narset. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, maybe it's maybe it's just like Snapcaster Mage. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe that sounds promising. Yeah, uh, definitely a problematic card. And maybe maybe Narset will catch on to the point where Phoenix is not really a viable deck. Just playing 20 cantrips Good is not something Good answer in Modern Horizons, though, quite frankly. The Delve spell. Yeah, true. So we'll have to see if that gets widespread adaptation. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely willing to play one or two copies. Uh, I had multiple set adrifts in the flame slash slot for a little bit mm-hmm. obviously a little bit awkward with pyromancer ascension yep and it, it just depends on what threat you're trying to kill there's no more death shadows in the format effectively so you Gone. don't you don't need lightning axe really anymore and there were times when lightning axe helped you as a discard outlet for arc light phoenix but most of the time it was a cost and not a benefit so i'm i'm pretty happy with the flame slashes currently but yeah uh still still searching for a way to answer narset We'll see if someone turns up a good, effective answer there. I think it'll be an interesting modern tournament, though. Things remain in flux in both formats, which is an exciting time to both play and watch Magic. So it should be an interesting tournament either way. Yeah, I definitely agree. I'm curious to see if anyone is going to kind of like break it. We'll see. It, it takes some some real fortitude to show up with a completely unproven deck in the highest stakes tournament of the SCG Tour year. Neither one of us really pulled the trigger on it. and uh, I'm getting kind of tempted, though, after this podcast. I'm like, yeah, maybe I should just white get those, some people. Get those narcissists together real quick. Yeah, I, I didn't bring all my cards with me, unfortunately. So I, I did that in part to kind of eliminate this temptation because I knew we were going to have a long conversation. And a lot of half-baked ideas can often come out of these things. But spend the time over the next week to bake these ideas fully, and then we'll just win some future modern tournament instead. Well, I started typing up a uh, blue moon Narset deck, and honestly, it wouldn't take that much weirdness for me to switch to this because I have all my Izzet cards on me already. Right, it looks very close to what you're already playing. Yeah, so we'll just need to acquire some... Oh, no, I brought Cryptic Commands with me. Look at that. Slam dunk. Swing for the fences, Jerry. You want to work on this? Well, I can't play it. I don't have any of these cards with me. No, just for funsies. You're already locked <laughs> into crappy Tron and crappy Esper. Well, I, I probably should sleep at some point before this tournament. I did take a red eye here to Roanoke today and haven't slept yet. And I'm running solely on Red Bull and Mexican food right now. Probably half delirious. I Hopefully I made cogent points throughout this podcast, but there's certainly no guarantee of it at this point. Yeah, more or less. Okay, good. That's what I shoot for, more or less, Cody. But you got to you got to drive down with your Head Games co-host, I did. Jonathan, Jonathan Carter. And I rode down together, yeah. How was that? It was what, fun. Why didn't you guys record an episode in the car? Because I was deliriously sleepy <laughs> and had nothing of value to say. I kept nodding off as we rode down here. So I'm sure that would have been a real enthralling podcast as I just randomly fall asleep during it. Oh, so you're just a, a bad car mate. I usually am not. Trips. I really am not whatsoever, but like... I, I just didn't sleep. And sometimes your body's like, nope, shutting it down now. Yeah. Now go- going from West coast to East coast is exceptionally brutal. Yeah. So I get that. Don't fault you at all, dude. I'm just happy 
you're out here in a tournament. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's been a long time since I played a Magic tournament. I mean, there were some MCQs in the Seattle area. I played a couple of those, but definitely nothing, you know, a little bit higher stakes like an SCG Invitational. Who do you think is going to win? And who do you think is going to qualify for the Players' Championship? So I I think the the present top three have to be the favorites. I mean, they have some distance between the fourth and fifth place. Abe Corrigan, Matthew Dilks, Oliver Tomiko sitting in one, two, and three right now. And Tomiko has 11 points over Ethan Gajewski in the four slot. So that's a pretty sizable gap. I've made no bones about the fact that I've been basically pulling for Dominic Harvey throughout this entire thing. I love his deck building style. There's someone who will take a risk, almost certainly come the Invitational. I've been chatting with Dom a little bit about some of these Narset ideas. I know he likes them quite a bit. Wouldn't surprise me if he took a shot there. But there is some distance between the top three and the people below that point. So I think it's really all about who takes down this tournament. I'm going to go with Austin Collins. Like, He's so consistent at these invitationals. I don't know what it is about these split formats, but he's top eight at three of them in a row. And I know he wants that trophy. He wants the breakthrough. So I'm going to say he's going to take down this invitational. Who you got in the finals? Hmm. I think it's, I think it's an Edgar tournament. Okay. I think Edgar is for the most part, very disciplined, very smart. I think he's going to have a great Esper list for standard. I think he's going to play Amulet to a 6-2 and two record or whatever, but thankfully the top eight is standard. I will say I talked with Edgar uh, quite a bit this past week about both modern and standard. He shares very similar viewpoints on all things magic right now with me right now. Uh, we were pretty much... Okay, I take it back. I take it back. <laughs> Sorry, Edgar, you cursed yourself. No, we were pretty much lockstep in how we wanted to build Amulet for this week, and we agreed basically on Esper and how it should be positioned as well. So... Uh, it'll be interesting to see if he is still. It's been a few days since I spoke to him now, so he could be in a different place come Friday morning. But it'll be interesting to see how he does. Another person definitely due for a big win here on the SCG Tour. How about some questions, Jerry? We have anything spicy from our Patreons over in our Discord this week? Yeah, we actually have a ton of stuff. Tons of questions. People fired up about this invitation. And I think you asked specifically invitational-related questions. Yeah, I, I said that's what we'd be discussing. And okay. A lot of people interested in the kind of unique challenges that come with a split format tournament. I, I think it just mostly boils down to time. I'll answer all your questions about that very simply. Like, you have to budget your time really well, uh, figure out how to deal with two separate, completely different formats. And sometimes you lean on some past experience, I think. Having Amulet in my back pocket definitely made me feel a little safer. Uh, but mostly it's just a time budgeting question. Yeah, I had is it in my back pocket, and I had three different standard decks in my back pocket. So, yep. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe I should have just discarded all of that and started from the beginning. Yeah, because like, what am I trying to do here? Am I trying to lock up like a top sixty-four finish? Well, I know, I know. Like, and I want that same conversation. Like, shouldn't I be taking a risk here and trying to do something special? I want to break it, and I want to do it in like very fancy fashion. And I was going to buy some Japanese visions to fairies puzzle boxes from Star City. I have some coming in the mail. I'll get you some. Well, it doesn't help me for this tournament. It doesn't for this tournament. And then, and then we did the versus live thing. And uh, lo and behold, they were sold out. Yeah, I might be responsible for that. Sorry. Sorry about Scum. this. Scum. So like I said, a lot of good questions this week. Uh, the one that we have selected to talk about is from Reynard. And Reynard asks, with the London Mulligan being official as of Corset 2020, do you expect any preemptive bannings in internal formats, or do you think Wizards will take a wait-and-see approach? I, I assume that Modern is kind of lumped into the eternal format thing, even though technically it's not an eternal format. Yeah, I now consider it an eternal format. I just think that's a cleaner uh, breakdown. But London Mulligan is interesting. I do find myself torn on the topic because I, I think it's a huge home run for limited especially, and is good in standard. I, I think in both those spots, it's a net positive to gameplay. In modern, I don't like it as much. And when, when I say that, people talk about the usual responses, oh, Tron proved not to be that broken. Combo decks aren't that broken. Everything's fine. You can react to them. That's not my beef. And I, I don't know why people think that's what my objection to the London Mulligan is. I think it makes games play out in a very similar fashion. And I think games become about a very specific point of interaction. And there's less 
fail state games. And fail state games can be interesting, especially in modern, because that's where the interaction often comes in, is in these fail state games. So it's less about what decks are really good under the London Mulligan rule and more about the types of decks, or excuse me, the types of games that are being played under the London Mulligan rule. And I think they tend to be very repetitive. And I felt that wholeheartedly in watching coverage of the London PT. It felt like I was seeing the same games over and over and over as they played out in the exact same fashion with less variance. And I I don't think it's net positive for a format, especially one like modern, which is already so, so linear and so devoid of interaction in so many situations. I think this only exasperates some of those problems in terms of preemptive bannings. I, I think routinely magic players underestimate the cost of banning. It's tremendous. Ban should be an absolute last case resort. It scares me to say like that's the default mode of getting this format cleaned up and ready to be played under the London Mulligan. Because quite frankly, I don't think you could fix this problem of repetitive game states with some preemptive bannings. Like if there was a problem deck, sure, you could take it down a peg. And like the one everyone talks about is Allosaurus Rider Neoform. I think that deck is quite frankly, just bad. Like, I don't think it's very good whatsoever. Stop eight of the last two Moto PTQs. I know it has. I don't understand how, Jerry. I literally lost more than 50% of my games while I was goldfishing the deck. Like, I'm not that stupid. I can put together this easy combo and I can't put together wins because it's just so, it just folds to itself consistently over and over in so many spots too. And I'm like, are people just scooping when they see an Allosaurus Rider? Like, I don't understand what's happening here. Anyway, aside on that deck, Bans are problematic. Even stupid decks like Allosaurus Rider, people have now purchased that deck. They have a large investment. Some people like that style of magic and you're kind of taking away their agency if you're preemptively banning it when it's not even doing anything to the format, even if the gameplay experience is miserable. Um, but I don't think you want to go down that road. And that's my concern with the London Mulligan. I I really think the correct solution here was multiple mulligan rules across multiple formats. And I know that's inelegant. I get that. But the complexity cost is lower than people pretend it to be. Like the intellectual investment in understanding an entire format of magic is already so high that having a separate mulligan rule really doesn't change the level of intellectual investment required. Like it's just a little tweak, something you'll know after playing one game in the format, you'll have it stored in your memory banks and that's the end of it. And it's inelegant and kind of sloppy looking. I get that. But where this rule is so good for standard and limited, I think if you recognize its faults in the modern format, maybe some people don't feel that way. Maybe some people aren't seeing the repetitive gameplay that I do. and don't think it's actually flawed in the modern format. That's fine. You're welcome to that opinion. Uh, but if you do see things my way and your argument against splitting up the types of mulligans per format is just complexity, I think that's kind of flawed. And I don't really buy that anymore, even if that was my first instinct as well. So my thoughts on London Mulligan for modern specifically are that modern has existed and thrived when it is ultimately a format based on very little interaction and it gets a wrap for like the two ships passing in a night thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that this does just exacerbate that problem. But I don't think that that is necessarily a bad thing for people who are lovers of modern as a format. Like okay. maybe maybe they do just want to do their thing every game. And that's it. I don't know. I, I do think it is interesting that Wizards has Magic Online data on this. They had every player at MC London take down the information for like who won the die roll, what the deck archetype was, uh, how many times each game, each player mulliganed. And they, they've had this data and granted like that data was all, you know, filled out by hand. So probably took like a while to go through, but like they still took a while to actually make this decision. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine that it was kind of close because I, I do think that this is more complicated than the Vancouver Mulligan, but the Vancouver Mulligan was instated like two weeks after that tournament. So that aspect is interesting to me. But as far as the actual question, do you think that there will be any preemptive bans? I don't because they already announced it. I think that if they thought that something would truly be problematic, it would be in their best interest to announce any sort of bannings alongside that because now you have players operating under the assumption that the London Mulligan is going to be a thing in modern legacy vintage going forward and they are going to spend money based around those things. 
So then if you just pull the rug out from under them, that's that's going to cost you a lot of consumer confidence. Yeah, consumer confidence is the the big problem with bands and the thing you always have to be aware of. And it matters a bunch. And people always, always understate just how much it matters. I think that's a good analysis, too. You would have done the bands before announcing it. The, you mentioned all the data gathered from... PT London. I think that data doesn't touch on any of the things I'm talking about. I agree. Though. I agree. But I think that that is what they are basing their decision on. Is that good? No, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. That's my instinct too. It, it just didn't feel or look right to me. That's to me. And you made a very good point that what I want out of modern very well may not align with what the very fervent player base wants out of the format. And if that's true, that's cool. Do your thing. Don't worry about my concerns. If people on the whole are, in gener- are enjoying the format much more, it should certainly move forward despite my objections. Uh, but I just want to share my take on it. I wouldn't have been so hasty to implement well, London Mulligan. Reynard asked us both, so you get to share your take. Okay, that's true. That That is what you're here for. Reynard does care about what I have to say on the topic. So I appreciate that, Reynard. Thank you for asking. Everyone else who doesn't care, too bad. You already heard it. It's, it's funny to me, though, because... I think they explored different mulligan options, largely in part because of Ellen Bogan versus Luis right. in the finals where Luis mulled the four or whatever and then so lost. And obviously that sucks. That is bad for coverage. That is a bad way to end a tournament. It's just a feel bad for every single person involved. But at the same time, if what this London mulligan is going to accomplish is that people are more likely to mulligan, especially in modern, like the, the narrative surrounding Tron and even like the Allosaurus Rider deck is just like, yeah, you can... Well, maybe more so with Tron, but you can go to three cards and still win. Mm -hmm. Uh, So now it's like you could have finals of an MC where a player willingly goes to three cards. Shuffle, 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 shuffle. Spends 10 minutes shuffling. And then if they win or they lose, is that a good thing? Like, I honestly don't think it is. No, I don't think so either. But this is like the core of my argument is that all of this stuff does not exist in standard and limited where this just solves that issue of the non-game. Like it does a really nice job of letting people on the mulligan put some coherent hands together and it's just a slam dunk there. And that is why I keep going back to the point that I I really would have liked some consideration of different mulligans for different formats, but obviously people did not agree. And I get why, like it's inelegant. I will concede that over and over. Uh, I just don't think the complexity argument really holds any weight when there's so much complexity baked into playing the game on a competitive level already. I mean, they tried to kill sideboarding on arena that didn't take because Mm -hmm. people want complex, right? Magic is a complex game. You are not necessarily attracted to this game unless you actually want to spend time working on puzzles and being challenged. Right. And I don't think that this is a great way to add complexity to the game where you have like different rules for different formats, but the thing that I keep bringing up to argue against this is that it already exists Mm -hmm. and it doesn't exist for like the competitive formats, but there's still commander two HG, whatever. And that is a wide portion of the player base and a wide portion of the players that attend magic fest and stuff like they will play the main event and then go play a two HG side event. And it's not that hard to figure out that you get free mulligans or whatever. Yep. It just isn't. Commander is a different game. Like it's a fundamentally different game than Magic. It uses the same rule sets, but it's a very different game. And it is the most popular Magic format on the planet, I believe, by most metrics. So even the quote unquote more casual player base can handle these rules differentials without really any sweat whatsoever. So that was that was my only real pronounced reaction to the announcement was I didn't think that was fair assessment of why to not have different mulligan rules. But on the whole, I'm happy with the announcement. I'm glad it's implemented. And uh, I don't think Modern's ruined or anything. I just think it's a little bit of a downgrade in that format, and we could have done without it. All right, well, that's game. Good luck.